Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 207. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, McCarty from PensionPenPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fulman. Hi, everybody. How are you doing, Fulman? I am not too bad. How about you? I'm, do- I'm doing well. I'm excited to tackle part two of our three-part NHL off-season series, where we will cover teams mostly in the middle of the alphabet and also Colorado. Yes, uh, and I would like to put on the record, it is my fault that we didn't do Colorado last time. I just sort of eyeballed some teams and somehow I got lost in the letter C. So I apologize for that. I will make my, my penance by doing Colorado later in this episode. Um, but we actually have some Leafs news to talk about before we get to the 10 teams that are not the Toronto Maple Leafs. And that is that franchise superstar Austin Matthews has signed an extension. Four years at $13.25 million. It's future dated, so it takes effect in 2024. He's still going into the last year of his previous contract. Um, this makes him the highest paid player in the NHL by AAV. Um, so we have some thoughts that we'll share with you about that. Um, I think this is fine. <laughs> yeah. I, look, at the end of the day, Matthews is the best player I've ever seen play for the Leafs. Right. Um, I'm too young to have really seen Gilmore. Uh, so maybe Gilmore in his prime has a has you know a, a shout, but like I think it's Matthews in the modern era. I don't think it's like that close. He's a phenomenal player, and in that sense, kind of whatever you have to do to keep him in the Leafs lineup is sort of what you have to do. Like you're not going to replace him, right? Like the Austin Matthews was the you know was the culmination of the of the years of darkness we suffered as Leafs fans. And the sign of, hey, we are going to be a real team again. Um, yes. And it's just, you can't really replace that. Um, Brad Treliving has said that, you know, Matthews could have demanded more money than he did. And that's absolutely true. Matthews can basically just say, fuck you, pay me. And someone would have done it. Um, so in that sense, you know, just getting him for the rest of his prime, making it so that he'll spend, I think it'll be like either 11 or 12 years as a Leaf, unless, you know, shit goes really awry and we trade him, which I don't think will happen. That's a, that's a big win. Matthews is on a Hall of Fame trajectory, and I don't really think that's super debatable. Um, at the same time, like, there are definitely nits to pick here. Sure. Um, as much as I want to focus on the reality that, you know, he's the only Toronto Maple Leaf to win the Hart Trophy for Most Valuable Player in the last 50 years plus he is the only player who i think has been legitimately close gilmore again had one terrific season where he sort of got in the conversation but yeah the caliber of player that matthews is basically meant he could write his own ticket it's kind of an interesting thought experiment to say that if all he cared about was money and he went to ufa next season um, how much money could he have gotten if he just took the best deal I suspect it's in excess of $15 million a year, um, depending on how many years he was willing to sign for. Now, that said, um, and you've pointed this out, there are other players of a very, very high caliber um, who can be considered comparables to Matthews. Nathan McKinnon is the most obvious one. And Nathan McKinnon took less money a year ago to sign for eight years of term. Now, the cap has risen a bit in the interim, so if you want to use cap percentage, it's a little different. But McKinnon committed to his franchise um, until 2031. 
at 12.6 million AEV. Well, there's a point about competitive advantage there that you that you've made in our notes here, which is if other teams are getting this kind of value for for franchise superstars and we're not, that is a disadvantage for us relative to them, and that's right. just a fact. Right, and this is like a situation where deserve has nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. Right, like this is a negotiation. You deserve what you negotiate for. Matthews could have negotiated for for more. He also could have negotiated for less. But like, you know, it's a choice he makes and I, I don't begrudge any player making a choice of I want to maximize my earnings certainly after seeing the Leafs spend you know 1.3 million per year for the next three years on Ryan Reeves I wouldn't be you know super <laughs> excited to give them more money to to mess around with necessarily um in general players shouldn't really do that but at the same time yeah we from a team perspective we can acknowledge that it's going to be probably a little bit harder to build around Matthew's contract than Nathan McKinnon's at least for the next little bit yeah. Right. Um, uh, this is sort of a different comparison because I don't think Matthew Kachuk was seen as this tier of player until this season after he had already signed an eight-year, $9.5 million deal. But last year, Matthew Kachuk was better than Austin Matthews, even in the regular season. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he's getting paid $4 million less. That That matters quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, that is a second line scoring forward of difference probably give or take you know between a guy who's a real contributor in that role and a guy who's probably on league minimum or cheap um absolutely that makes it harder to build the team around him now i think that um, there's been some discussion driven primarily by dom lachishan's evaluation where he said matthews is underpaid and people found that kind of incredible because he has the highest AAV in the league, and he's not the best player in the league. He has a case for second best, although last year he wasn't. Um, and I think that's a little bit tricky, because you can still say he is underpaid in the sense that all NHL superstars are underpaid, just in the system in which they operate. They don't get paid commensurate with their value. And at the same time, you can say, in the superstar class he's not uh, taking the same discount that the rest of them are. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of tricky. Matthews is a, in a position to absolutely dictate his own contract. He could have asked this of any of 32 teams. I suspect all of them would have given him this. If that's was, if those were the only terms he was willing to sign for, I would be really surprised if any team said no. And I'm talking teams would make serious efforts to liquidate cap space to accommodate him. He is that caliber of player. Um, and so at the same time, it's so sort of like, okay, if this is what he wants, if this is how he chooses to maximize earnings, your choice from a team perspective is take it or leave it. You know, you can work on it a little bit. You can sell him on the vision. And to some extent that clearly worked because he didn't go to test free agency and see what the most money he could have gotten would be. But yeah, he can basically write his own ticket because it's just that hard to get an Austin Matthews caliber of player. Yep. Basically. Right. And and that, that's ultimately what it, what it comes down to. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So again, like Matthews is an absolutely phenomenal player. His heart season is, you know, about as high a peak as we've seen for any player in the modern era who is not named Connor McDavid. Mm-hmm. Right, like it's it's a truly, truly phenomenal season that 
you know, we really hope he can get back to. And I think mm-hmm. the the thing about this is that he sort of needs to get back to that level of consistent play in order for this to be very justified. Not justifiable. It's justifiable just to keep Matthews for the opportunity to, you know, to have a player of this caliber. But in order for the Leafs to really succeed, you know, the most likely path to that is is Matthews just consistently being, you know, the best or second best player in the league over mm-hmm. the life of this deal. Right. And, you know, I, I don't want to overstate the extent to which he had a down year last year. He was like sixth in the league in goals above replacement per evolving wild, which is obviously very good. Um, but he did see backslides and things that we had previously grown accustomed to seeing from Matthews uh, in particular. He basically was a goals equals expected goals guy last season, which is like a problem because a large chunk of his value, not all of it, but a large chunk of his value is in the fact that over the course of his career, he has been like a goals equals 1.4 times expected goals person, right? Or something like he's been a ludicrous shooter over the course of his career, except for last season. Mm -hmm. In prosaic terms, that means he shoots the lights out. Yes. (laughs) And the other issue was that his defense really slid, right? Um, His shot suppression was, was much worse. Um, and it was obfuscated in part because the Leafs had much better goaltending than they did in the prior year with uh, where Jack Campbell and previously Freddie Anderson having some struggles. But, you know, that's an important factor. And those two things, like in conjunction with all his other skills, are what separates, you know, Austin Matthews' peak season from what Matthew Kachuk did last year, for example. Mm-hmm. Right? So, like, we, we need Matthews to be kind of that unicorn player where, like, there's a non-zero chance he wins the Rocket and the Selkie in the same year. Yes. Right? Like, that that's the vision for Matthews. And with this contract, um, you know, he sort of has to get to that point consistently for it to open up kind of the largest paths of the Leafs to be a, a true contender again. Uh, I, I Sorry, I shouldn't say again as if they weren't last year, but, like, to, to, to really, like, make this team as good as it can be. Right? Absolutely. A, a lot of the Leafs' difference between... Um, 21 22 and 22 23 overall stats uh, at, at the team level was the fact that the first line just wasn't quite as good the Matthews mm-hmm. line wasn't quite as dominant as it used to be in terms of controlling play he got very good goals numbers um again in part due to the, the save percentage but yeah that that is going to be very important for the Leafs um you know especially because we can't always rely on great goaltending uh, mm-hmm. we, we got it last year. We're very grateful to Ilya Samsonov that, that we did. Um, but, you know, Samsonov isn't, you know, Igor Shesterkin or, or Andre Vasilevsky. Yeah. And so. even for that caliber of goaltender, it's not a lead pipe cinch. For right. anyone short of that, it's just very uncertain. Uh, there is one other thing that I wanted to note. If Matthews had been willing to do this for eight years or eight years for a somewhat higher AV, I'm sure the Leafs would have done it. He seems to have been pretty clear that he wanted four years or something shorter. That's going to allow him to go back into unrestricted free agency. The median case is he gets a raise on his next contract under a significantly higher cap. However, Matthews has experienced injuries in his career that have somewhat threatened his effectiveness. When we talk about his shooting declining last year, there's some question as to whether that was a wrist injury flaring up or issues that he was having there. I don't know the extent of it. I don't know the details, but it's there. And he has certainly missed time. 
if Matthews falls apart physically, and I am knocking so hard on wood right now, um, he is eating a lot of risk on the latter half of this contract, or like on the contract that he could have had, because it's going to end when it, when he's 31 instead of 35. Um, I don't know that that impacts too much, because that's sort of a worst-case scenario for all involved. But it actually does mean that this contract has a little bit less downside risk for the Leafs than it otherwise would. Right. Um, even though it also has less upside. Ultimately, you would still take the risk and just sign the player for term, but it's something to note. Yeah, I've seen people say that this term is actually like ideal for the Leafs. And mm. <laughs> that <laughs> ideal I don't, is too strong. Yeah. yeah, I don't agree with. So aging is a concern from like, you know, 31 to 35 or 32 to 35. Matthews will probably be worse than he is right now. The thing with like super elite players is that they come down from a very high height and they mm. are often still very, very good despite not being at their peak, right? And that's the thing with Matthews. He's absolutely in that caliber of players. You look at how Pavel Datsuk aged, how Sidney Crosby has aged, how Alex Ovechkin has aged, how Joe Thornton aged. Mm. They, they were, you know, worse at 33, 34, 35 than they were at, you know, 23, 24, 25, but you could still win with them for sure. Yes. Right? Matthew, like, these types of players come along so rarely. A- aging curves are averages, right? It's useful to remember that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Matthews and other star players are not immune from them and are certainly not immune from, like, the injury-related risks that come with age as well. But they do actually just tend to age, I think, a fair bit differently than rank-and-file NHL players because they come from, they're coming down from such high heights. Yes. And as a final point, I think it kind of loops around back into the thing that we talked about, which is that these players are not replaceable. They are too rare and too hard to come by. And so much of it is a matter of chance. Like, the chances of the Leafs winning that lottery that enabled them to draft Austin Matthews were one in five. And if he gets picked somewhere else, maybe we never get the chance um, to sign him, very possibly. And so you are paying for the chance of having that player, even though it's not a certainty, just because they are so hard to come by or to replace. And that's ultimately the takeaway here. I'm sympathetic with some people who are kind of tired of hearing about the numbers, even though we do a podcast that is very numbers-focused, because they just want to say, look... The best player I've seen play for Toronto in my lifetime committed to stay in Toronto when he could have gone somewhere else. That is not nothing, and I think you're justified in saying that's the main takeaway here. Warts and all. So. Uh, okay. Yep, I, I agree. Uh, ulti- ultimately, any deal where you sign Matthews is better than the alternative, and I think that's, that's undeniably true here as well. Okay, let's start talking about some other teams. Beginning with the Los Angeles Kings. Yep, let's do that. So the Kings got 104 points last year. They finished uh, third in the Pacific, 10th in the league overall, lost in round one to Edmonton in a a hard-fought series. Um, So some departures. Uh, They lost, I'll mention three people uh, off the the top. They all lost these guys in the same deal. Uh, Gabriel Velarde, uh, Alex Ayafalo, and Rasmus Kuperi. Um, These were all basically traded for uh, Pierre-Luc Dubois, who we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, Villardi is a solid young player, so some promise, was probably an above-average player last year at age 23, um, flashed some real kind of defensive shot suppression talent in a middle six role, and has been a good shooter, 
across his young career. So he, he was kind of the crown jewel for Winnipeg uh, in, the, in the Dubois return. Alex Iafato, consistent second, third line tweener, makes $4 million this season and next. Rasmus Kaperi, more of like a throw-in. Um, another young player, less promising than Villardi, hasn't done as much at the NHL level. Um, as I mentioned, all three of these were traded in the Pierre-Luc Dubois deal, along with a second rounder in 2024. Worth noting, that's Montreal's second rounder, so it projects to be like a pretty good second rounder. Hey, Montreal still got to be involved in a Pierre-Luc Dubois trade. <laughs> that they did. <laughs> um, they lost uh, Eunice Corposalo, who signed with Ottawa for five years, $4 million AAV. Um, we'll talk about Ottawa, I think, this podcast as well. Um, he's been good the last two years, was like terrible before that. Um, and in the last few years, he hasn't exactly played like a starter's workload. I'd kind of be leery of him as a starter, but $4 million isn't like a ton. He's kind of being played like a platoon guy, so maybe that's all right. Um, Sean Dursey, we covered last week or last last episode, traded to Arizona um, for the Montreal second rounder, which was then rerouted in the Dubois deal. Uh, we know about Dursey, offensively tilted, third pair, second pair tweener, um, was traded for Jake Muzzin. Good trade for the Leafs. That's basically all the thoughts I have about Sean Dursey. Sean Walker was traded along with Calvin Peterson and the 23rd overall pick in the 2023 draft, LA's 2024 second, and some Ivan Provorov retention in a three-way deal with Philly and Columbus. Um, this was basically a cap dump where they got about $5.6 million in relief this year and $3 million in relief next year. Um, Calvin Peterson is getting paid like a lot more than he's worth. He's not very good, or at least wasn't very good last year. Um, this seemed like kind of a steep price to pay for, for the cap retention, or sorry, for the cap you know, savings that they got, but they kind of needed this for the Pierre-Luc Dubois deal, so I guess they didn't have a ton of other options, and cap space was at a premium this offseason. Yeah, it, um, of all the parties to that deal, I, I am not super comfortable with LA's end of it, but I get why they did what they did. Cal Peterson became unplayable at the NHL level last year. It was a very steep decline from his heights of a couple years back, and so it was almost all dead money anyway. All you could have there is the hope that he was going to regain his form and become worth more than zero dollars. And L.A. is not in a position to be super patient with that, especially with an opportunity to get Pierre-Luc Dubois. Right. So that segues nicely into talking about the additions that they made. And the biggest one by far is um, Pierre-Luc Dubois. They traded for him, then extended him to an eight-year, $8.5 million deal. Um Dubois hasn't really justified this contract by what he's done thus far, to be completely honest. Like, I think he had a great start to his career and then has just sort of maintained the same level. He didn't have kind of the expected growth um, or he didn't realize the expected growth that people projected for him. Um, that said, you know, he's been in Columbus and Winnipeg, not great situations, situations he both clearly didn't want to be in by the end. So maybe there's some unlocked potential there. Ellie's kind of clearly going long here to capture the long-term value with the cap increasing. Mm-hmm. And this is going to be a theme, actually, with a bunch of the teams that we cover. Even when the players don't really, like, justify it with what they've done in their career thus far, most of the time these deals turn out fine. Mm-hmm. It's just generally a pretty good idea to bet on, like, prime age players who have shown something. Right. right? And, but, you know, by the end of this deal, if the cap increases like everyone is expecting it to, this is not going to be more than second-line center money anyway. So even if he doesn't really take another step in a better situation, it's very possible this deal continues to be good value to the end of it, I would say. Yes, and Dubois has absolutely has first-line upside. He's been like a first-line quality center before. Like I, I, I would describe his peak thus far in his career as like an average 1C. Mm-hmm. And he can absolutely get back to that. 
Um, this is also essentially their long-term Kopitar succession plan, uh, along with possibly Quinton Byfield. Um, and, you know, Dubois isn't and probably will never be as good as Anse Kopitar is. That has more to do with how good Kopitar is than anything. This is like a reasonable bet for them to make. Um, to get the kind of elite talent they need to push themselves from a good team to a true contending team. Mm-hmm. Um, Cam Talbot signed for one year, one million. I We normally don't mention super small contracts like this, uh, but the Kings have a very tenuous goaltending situation. Where uh, Phoenix, is, yeah. Oh, yeah. Phoenix I was just going to say, that's what stands out to me looking at this team. Yeah. Their goalie situation is really dicey. It is. It's Phoenix Copley and uh, Cam Talbot. They're making two and a half million combined. That said, I remember we said the same thing about Vegas last year, um, and they cobbled together enough goaltending to win a cup. So it's totally doable. It's just a little bit risky. Their backup plan to Cam Talbot is David Riddick. So, you know, there isn't, you know, the the Rohirrim charging in from the East or whatever. <laughs> um, they signed Trevor Lewis uh, for a very small amount of money. I didn't know he was still in the league. Um, and they extended Anse Kopitar uh, to... A two-year, $7 million AAV deal. Kopitar is now 36 years old. As with anyone at age 36, we have to do the dance of, well, this could fall apart at any time, but Kopitar has been a first-line quality center for a long, long time. He's been West Coast Bergeron, basically, for a while. As long as that happens, this is a a deal where they're actually capturing a ton of value. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, and other things to note... Kings are a good team right now, and as you'd expect, they're not like super known for their prospect pool, but they have, I guess, two big sources of upside in Quentin Byfield and Brant Clark. Uh, Quentin Byfield has not shown that much more than being an average NHL thus far, but at age 20, being an average NHL is like, pretty good. And he, I think, from what I know, he kind of came on uh, more and more last season, which, which is good. Um, the probability of a star outcome is kind of like dwindling for him because you kind of need to see it relatively early. But, you know, there's a lot of room between average player and star that Byfield can fit in, and that would be a very valuable player. Um, Brant Clark destroyed the CHL last year. Should be a Calder contender, I assume. Um, And overall, kind of the Kings are in this group of teams that are quite good and looking to make the jump into a great team. Uh, This is the second offseason in a row where they've made kind of a premium forward acquisition. Last year, it was Kevin Fiala. And I think that was a good move. Fiala's a very good player. Um, And yeah, on the whole, I think this is... A team that's pretty competently run. They have a clear vision. They're kind of a two-timelines team. They have some young guys, but now they've reoriented more to just like, let's see if we can have one last like real contending run when Kopitar is still good and Drew Doughty um, is still like a, a useful player. Doughty had you know a horrible contract for a long time, was considered one of the worst in hockey. But as the team has gotten better around him, he's recaptured some of his, his former glory uh, and has made that deal look you know less worse than it, than it did previously. Less bad than it did previously. Yeah, um, you look at this forward group, and it's impressively deep, is what I would say. You know, they're running Kopitar, Pierre-Luc Dubois, and Philippe Deneau down the middle. That seems to me like a very solid group of players to build around, even if none of them is currently like a superstar. Um, Kopitar used to be in that caliber. He's still very good, as we've mentioned. And then around them, they've got Fiala, they've got Adrian Kempe, they've got old friend Trevor Moore, who has earned himself quite the raise. Um, I think that certainly they're a good team for sure. I just find myself wondering, is that jump to the top tier coming? And if so, where, as you mentioned, you know, they would love a huge hit with Quentin Byfield or with Frank Clark or both. Mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah, and then their goaltending situation, I'm like, well, goalies. That's all I can say. But if if that's what sinks them, that would not be a shock to me. So Yes. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's move on to the Minnesota Wild. Minnesota Wild got 103 points. They were third at the Central. They were 11th in the league, and they lost in round one to Dallas. This is a very, very similar team by the profile to the one we just covered. Um, departures from Minnesota. Minnesota had the most Minnesota offseason possible. Um, they didn't really lose anyone big, and they didn't really add anyone big. Um, they lost Gustav Nyquist, who signed in Nashville. They lost Matt Dumba, who signed in Arizona. They lost John Klingberg and Ryan Reeves, who both signed in Toronto. This reminded me of the Ryan Reeves contract, and now I am sad. Uh, I will have you know that in Arvin's notes on this section, it just says Ryan Reeves signed three times $1.35 million with Toronto, and then in brackets it just says Christ. So <laughs> yes, uh, that's your takeaway. Yeah, so none of these departures are all that meaningful. Um, I guess like you would think that Dumba and Klingberg were the most meaningful, um, mm-hmm. but Minnesota has guys who can, you know, who can basically just take the spot of, of both of those. So that's it's not a huge deal. Um, they did acquire Patrick Maroon one year at 800K. He was acquired for a seventh rounder. Sure, yeah, that'll fix things. <laughs> like it's, I doesn't matter very much. Maroon's a fine fourth liner. Um, Tampa Bay retained 200K on Maroon. It's only for a year, so I guess there's no real harm done, but it's like odd to use a retention slot on such a small amount. Um, to get a seventh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I don't think it'll matter very much. No. Um, this is not an off-season move. Uh, this happened in January, but they came to terms with uh, Matt Boldy on a seven-year, $7 million AAV deal. Boldy has been uh, quite good, frankly, in his NHL career. More of a shooter than a passer, but he shoots very well. Um and again, I'm just we're, I'm going to say this many more times. Going long on young players who have shown this level of promise is something that pretty much always works out well, especially in a rising cap environment. And we say that a lot, and people will say, oh, the cap didn't rise you know, over the last X years. It's like, well, there were some extenuating circumstances in there. Mm-hmm. right? I, I think it's pretty reasonable to expect the cap to rise going forward. And for a guy like Boldy, who I think will top out as kind of a, a solid first-liner, if not like a franchise-level player, um, I think this is a totally reasonable move. I think it's a smart move, actually. Uh, mm-hmm. Minnesota also extended Marcus Johansson for two years, $2 million AAV after acquiring him midseason. Um, this concludes your semi-annual Marcus <laughs> Johansson update. Never going to give up on him. Uh, he's, he's a good player. I'm glad he kind of rescued his career after it looked like concussions were going to really like limit what he could do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, happy about that. That's everything the Wild did this summer. Quiet off-season. I mean, probably required to be, as you've noted here, because they didn't have that much room to maneuver. And a lot of that has to do with the buyouts that they have made. To Ryan Suter and Zach Parise, who you might recall, um, a very long time ago, Suter and Parise signed two of the biggest contracts in NHL history. They were both 13 years in length back in an era where that was legal. You can't do that under the CBA anymore. Anyway, uh, the Wild tired of them under the new management of Bill Guerin and bought them out. And those buyouts are taking up nearly $15 million against the salary cap. It is, as you've noted in our notes, remarkable that they are as good as they are with $15 million of completely dead money. Right. Like, imagine if Austin Matthews just, like, missed the rest of the season and then also, you know... Who, who else? I was Kerfoot, usually my, usually my, my go-to $3 million player example. We don't have him anymore. Yarncroke. Um, 
Yeah. 2.1. Yeah. It's just like, and they're just gone. You know? No LTIR. Just straight up not participating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And the reason that, you know, Minnesota is still a playoff team, despite essentially lighting $15 million on fire, is that they just have a lot of good contracts. Joel Erickson Eck, $5.3 million over the next six years. Kirill Kaprizov, $9 million over the next three years. Um, I think they couldn't go, like, longer than they did. Like, the Kaprizov contract was a bridge, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they couldn't go longer because of some extenuating cap issues. But even, like, you know, the $9 million contract signed was capturing a ton of value and it's a good, a good deal. Um, Matt Zuccarello, who we were kind of surprised that, you know, the length and the uh, size of the contract that he got from leaving New York has been very, very good over his time in Minnesota. Like, he's aged phenomenally. What I remember most about Matt Zuccarello is the quote about him being like a lizard. Yes. Yeah. You know but... how it like <laughs> takes its tongue and just shoots it where it wants to go? <laughs> yeah. It was so oddly phrased. That's the thing. Is it's, it's not even just the metaphor, which was fascinating in and of itself. But yeah, just the way that he put it into words was truly special. Anyway, yeah, Matt Zuccarello has had a great, um, not Hall of Fame caliber career, but like very much in the Hall of Very Good for a long time. And I think it's been impressive, especially you consider he's one of the smallest guys in the NHL. And uh, he's still been very effective, even to, into his mid-30s. Yep. Um, so basically everyone that the Wild lost can be internally replaced pretty easily. They didn't make any big additions because they, they couldn't. So where does this leave this team, right? Like they're, They've sort of been Leafs West for a while. They're just mm-hmm. consistently a playoff team. And it's sort of unclear if they have what it takes to jump into that next tier. Right, I, the Leafs have probably been a little bit more successful in the regular season, certainly the last couple years. Mm-hmm. But in terms of playoff success, you know, it's it's been a lot of the same. They're more or less committed to running it back until they get some real flexibility when Parise mm-hmm. and Suter come off the books. That seems yes. sort of fine to me. Like I imagine it's kind of frustrating for their fans, but I don't think they're in like a bad spot because they they have a pretty good, pretty young team. They do need a goaltending solution of the future. They they have Marc Andre Fleury kicking around. Um, yeah. they, they Although Gustafson was great last year for them. Yes, so. also true. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think I think they're kind of doing what they should be doing. And, yeah, it's probably not a lot of comfort for Wild fans who have been starved of, like, a ton of success. Certainly, like, meaningful playoff success. But this seems like a, a pretty reasonable project that they got going on here. Yeah. Um, I still find the decision to buy out Parisian Sudu fascinating. I'm still not sure it was the right one. Um, this year and next, it's 15 million debt against the cap each season. After that, the buyout amount plummets to 1.6 million, which is obviously extremely manageable, and will give them some flexibility to make a lot of other choices in a rising cap situation. Mm-hmm. I will say this: I have never been able to make myself take the Minnesota Wild seriously, and as much as I'm impressed with some of the stuff that they've done, they've never really forced me to. When playoff time rolled around, they just seem to me like a team that is very firmly in the second tier of the NHL and probably towards the lower end of it. It's not that hard to imagine them making a leap up because they're always in that conversation, but they don't quite seem to have enough juice, in my opinion, to really contend. Still, though, not a bad situation to be in compared to some of the other teams that we will talk about in this episode. Right. Yeah, and let's talk about one of those teams, uh, the Montreal Canadiens. 
Uh, They got 68 points last season. They finished 8th in the Atlantic, 28th in the league. They missed the playoffs. Um, Departures. Jonathan Drouin signed a one-year 825K deal with Colorado. This basically just closes the book on a failed trade. Um, It is easy to forget how well thought of Drouin was as a prospect and as a young player. Yes. Actually, I wanted to talk about this a bit. As mentioned, I belatedly did my notes on the Colorado Avalanche, who signed Drouin to that minimum contract. And so I looked into him a little bit in the, that context, and I just wanted to note something. Um, Drouin tore a tendon in his wrist in November 2019. Since then, he has a total of 10 goals in 144 games. That also tells you how much time he's missed entirely. Um, last year, he had two goals in 58 games. He was never a goal scorer first and foremost in the NHL. He's a playmaker. But that is such a minuscule amount of personal offense for an offensive player that it's hard for me not to think that the injuries have just basically wrecked his ability to put the puck in the net himself. Um, because it's almost unplayable. Like, you can't score two to five goals a year as an offensive forward and stay in the NHL. And if he didn't have his prior reputation, I think he would already be gone. Yeah. It's in general, passing and shooting play off each other. They're, Mm -hmm. they both amplify, you know, the effectiveness of the other. If you are an entirely one dimensional passer and you teams don't respect your shot at all, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's a problem, right? People have always talked about Mitch Marner when he was early in his career this way, and I always thought it was kind of silly because Marner was never, like, a distance threat, but, like, his finishing has always been fine, especially in tight, where he's creative and skilled enough to make do without, like, an incredibly strong shot and also has just absurd hands. Um, But you really have to be a truly superlative player to be just a shooter or just a passer, and it's, it's, yeah, it's not... It's really important to have skills that synergize, and being good at both helps a ton. Um, this also happened with uh, Sean Monahan, another Habs player, by the way, where Monahan was once a lock for 30 goals, and wrist injuries have just like completely destroyed his shot. And also, um, going way back, the same thing happened to Alex Seaman. Yeah, and he had um, the deadliest wrist shot, I think, in the NHL at one point. I distinctly remember the, the run-and-gun caps, and he was just absolutely deadly, like Tarasenko caliber, where he could just shoot it from an impossible distance and pick the corner, and it was like a gunshot. Uh, and yeah, and then when the end came for that skill set, suddenly his he looked like he was kind of an albatross contract-wise. Mm-hmm. It's tough. It's unforgiving. Yeah. Um, wow, that's really ominous in the wake of Austin Matthews' wrist injury, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Anyway, moving right along. Moving right along. Yeah, but we're going to slide over that real quick. Um, mm-hmm. Joel Edmondson also departed Montreal. He was traded with one time, one year and $3.5 million left on his deal to Washington for a third and a seventh. Montreal retained 50%. Um, this just seems like a good bit of business here for Montreal. It's like, this is pretty easy to do. You have an old guy, the last year of his deal. Some team wants him for some reason. I don't like fuck if I know <laughs> why. Um, but you're, you just sell to the highest bidder. And, and you're, you're willing to retain because cap hits don't mean anything to you as, if you're Montreal right now. So who gives a shit? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, th- I mean, this isn't like genius level stuff, but they're just, they're just doing the competent things that bad teams do. 
Uh, Mike Hoffman was traded um, to San Jose as part of the Eric Carlson, Carlson deal that Montreal helped facilitate, which we'll cover a little bit more below. Um, Brent Pitlick was traded in that as well, but he's heading to Pittsburgh, not to San Jose. In terms of additions and extensions, um, Casey DeSmith came back in that deal. Uh, he has won by $1.8 million left on his deal, was acquired with a second-round pick for facilitating the, uh, the Carlson deal. Montreal also acquired Jeff Petrie, and uh, they turned around and retained on him further in a trade to Detroit, which happened after our prior podcast, so we didn't discuss it last time. Uh, they got a fourth rounder out of this, and Gustav Lindstrom, which really feels like Detroit just trying to play the hits and be like, hey, his name sounds like that old guy that we that we had who was really good. <laughs> um, anyways, funny. this is what bad teams do, right? This is, they, they weaponize their cap space. They pick up minor assets in return for it. Totally reasonable. Um, as a side note, Mike Matheson and Jeff Petrie were traded for each other last year. And as I recall, we sort of thought it was like kind of a fair deal. Um, Petrie probably had like a higher peak, but then... As it's turned out, Montreal got quite a bit of value uh, out of it, considering they acquired Petrie again for nothing and flipped him for a small asset. And Matheson was was good for them last year and has been actually like kind of a quietly good player for a while. M- maybe one of the more underrated players in the league because I don't think too many people actually think too much about Mike Matheson. And I think he's also tarnished because he was the reason Florida made some of their terrible expansion draft decisions. Yeah, he was a factor in it. He wasn't the worst uh, in it. And the, the worst of them was this journeyman defenseman who was soon out of the league. Um, and that was the most glaring one. But I, I remember Matheson factored into their calculations, I think. Um, yeah, I will say, when you're at a team in Montreal's position where you appear to have the confidence of ownership, you're not on the hot seat. Kent Hughes has a mandate to do a patient rebuild here. You are playing on easy mode. Yeah, this like, is, like this is the easiest part of being an NHL GM, probably by far. Yeah, like if Mike Matheson were absolute garbage last year, the consequences would have been fairly minimal. Um, now it's to Kent Hughes' credit that he wasn't, and that may bode well for the future. I'm just saying, you have a real safety net in that you're already pretty far down anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, they also acquired Alex Newhook. They traded the 31st and 37th overall picks for his signing rights from Colorado and then signed him to a four-year, $2.9 million deal, um, AAV. Everything, if I don't specify AAV, it's always AAV. Um, Newhook has not done enough in the NHL to justify this level of investment in him, I think. Um, but he is young. And basically, this is just a bet on the Habs pro scouting. Um, they did mm-hmm. something similar to this last year with Kirby Doc. Uh, that looks better now for Montreal than it does for Chicago because Doc was, I think, solid last season. This is kind of another um, acquisition of the same mold. So I have uh, no real issues with this. It's just a, a question of their scouting, right? Like th- this won't look good by the stats because they're they're presumably trying to identify someone who is who they thought was undervalued or underplayed or whatever. Um, they re-signed Sean Monaghan, which we alluded to before, one year just shy of $2 million. Um, Yeah, unfortunately, Monaghan's just a shell of what he used to be. Uh, and then the the big one is they re-signed Cole Caulfield. Eight years, 7.85 million AAV. Again, going long on players who have shown promise is going to work out. Um, especially if you sign them when you're currently bad and therefore mm. their stats suck. Yeah, I, I do. You know, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are noting that we keep saying, great to go long on young players, great to go long on young players. And they're noticing that the Leafs only did that to a limited extent. And they do certainly own that. But the Leafs were also better than some of these teams were. Like, 
they were a contender at the time they were trying to negotiate some of these deals. And unfortunately, I think it did weaken their bargaining position. Yeah, I mean, if we're comparing to the lease, Matthews and Marner in particular were too good too fast. Right, they came into the league and were immediately basically first liners, mm-hmm. and as a result, you know, it gets sort of hard to say, oh, you're, you're you know, we're gonna try and go real long on you and pay you like not that much because you haven't shown, you know, as much as as like other established first liners. Whereas, you know, if you want to do that with like Matthews and Marner, they would have said, pay us like you're we're some of the best players in the league because that's what we project to be, and like yeah. they had no reason to doubt that. Caulfield has had struggles. He had terrible stats under uh, Dominic Ducharme, which changed pretty much immediately after he was fired. There's probably some randomness to that, but it is hard to judge a guy whose NHL track record has like a large portion of it being under a guy who is clearly not qualified to be an NHL head coach. Granted, he did beat the Leafs in the first round playoff series. Yes, and that will forever be a stain on the record of the Toronto Maple Leafs franchise. But yeah, I just wanted to note, um, and we've talked enough about the Marner thing, but just to say they were coming off signing John Tavares to a big contract in a go-for-it mode. And so the risk of Mitch Marner not playing um, was significant in and of itself. Caulfield couldn't really play hardball here. If anyone offer sheets him, which is very unlikely, the Canadians can match. Uh, <laughs> if Caulfield tries to, you know, kind of grind them down, the Canadians say, we don't need to be good right now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um... Just noting that those factors all have set them up well, I think this contract will be good, even if Caulfield just turns out to be shooting percentage in a small package. He's got a lot of it. Yep. And, I mean, offer sheets for this caliber of player are where it gets kind of dicey. Where offer sheets make a ton of sense is for guys who you could pay, like, $3 million to. And it's, like, a little pricey, and you don't really have to give up a pick, but, like, they're still probably worth it. Mm-hmm. Right. For guy- Once you get to, like, the 7 $8 million range, you're giving up a lot of draft equity. Yeah, and it doesn't happen. So, mm-hmm. um, Yeah, Montreal is just a boring team. They're young, bad, doing normal things. This is the easy part of being a GM. Wake me up when they try to start winning. Yeah, uh, that's the basic takeaway here. Um, anything is possible in this wild and wonderful sport we call hockey, but I would strongly expect the Montreal Canadiens to finish eighth in the division. So. Yeah, I mean, I think more than anything, like other teams will, might like chase wins Montreal is not going to do that they're they're happy to tank again yeah and get another high draft pick like this is this is perfectly fine sets them up for the future so yeah it's not going to lead to an exciting on ice product but sure uh okay Nashville Predators um 92 points fifth in the central 19th in the league missed the playoffs this is the same amount of points as the Florida Panthers it's a crazy world isn't it it it's is a truly crazy world. And it's a really crazy world in terms of what Nashville did, because they had one of the most baffling off seasons to me of any team we're going to talk about. Yeah, kind of odd. Um, so departures, Matt Duchesne bought out, um, signed for one by three million in Dallas. This is not crazy in of itself. Um, it is a little weird to me that Duchesne had zero trade value. Like he did have some trade protection and like maybe they just didn't want to retain on it. Um, but anyways, they decided not to trade him and instead buy him out. I, I, you can sort of talk yourself into it if you say, okay, Nashville really wants to rebuild, wants to promote some younger players, clear the room out. Um, 
But, you know, Duchesne, by all measures, is still a quality player, albeit one that's not worth $8 million anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, This stretches out his cap hit until 2028-2029, but it's relatively small after the 25-26 season. So that's three seasons of, like, I think a $5 or $6 million cap hit uh, on the books or something like that. And then it gets like pretty pretty manageable. Um, still, just a little odd. I'm I'm kind of surprised by this. Yeah, me too. Uh, very much so. And it's like, okay, the deal would have ended in summer 2026 if you had let it run. So you've gained a considerable amount of cap relief this season, um, and then maybe two and a half million the season after that, one and a half million the season after that. If you look at their team position, and we'll talk about this more, it is really curious to me that they prioritized freeing up cap space right now um, over all the other things they could have done. So, like, I would not have bought out this contract, and it doesn't make a lot of sense to me that they did. Yeah, so they they added to this by trading Ryan Johansson, who has two years, $8 million left, uh, to Colorado for nothing uh, with 50% retention. So mm-hmm. it's two two years, four million per year for Colorado. Also, kind of a question mark again. Like this is basically like dumping a guy to clear cap space the next couple seasons. Um, there's less of a long term impact for this, right? Because it's just the two seasons that he's on the books. But like you, you've lost a pretty good player in Ryan Johansson. Yeah, he was not remotely worth his contract, and I could see why that would be, I don't know, upsetting, in terms of restraining your optionality. But you were so desperate to free up $4 million this year and next against the cap that you were willing to dispose of him to the Colorado Avalanche for no return whatsoever. They did technically get Alex Galchenyuk signing rights, but, like, yeah, n- yeah. as we said, not much. Which, which they did not use, and then he went on to sign in Arizona, and then he had the DUI incident, which led to his contract being terminated anyway. And, so, yeah, yeah, now he signed with... St. Petersburg in the KHL, I think. Is he? Yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised. I think that that was kind of the last draw for his NHL career. Yep. Uh, okay. So, yeah, th- these moves maybe make sense if you want to commit to a rebuild, come hell or high water, say we're just clearing the room out, you know. It makes less sense if you just want to retool with some other dudes because, like, you lost players who weren't worth their deals, yes, but are still, like, good players. And it's hard to, like, completely make that up in with the cap savings that you have. Um so this is what they did. They were tried to do because they signed Ryan O'Reilly to four years, four and a half million dollars per year. This is fine. Ryan O'Reilly's still a good player. We mentioned in the Leafs offseason recap that we would have both signed this deal if we were the Leafs. Um, and I think O'Reilly at four and a half million is a better deal than Duchesne at, you know, kind of the implied price of, of whatever he is minus his buyout this year or like Johansson at four million. But what is the goal here exactly? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, O'Reilly's a good player. He can still pass. He's still a demon on the boards. He still has a knack for scoring some important goals like he did in round one against the Lightning. Um, you know, his play driving numbers still look phenomenal. He had a down year last year in terms of his counting stats because a lot of his St. Louis teammates forgot how to finish. I don't really think that's O'Reilly's fault. But he is not Ryan O'Reilly where, uh, you know, he's not prime Ryan O'Reilly where he's a Selkie candidate and like a true top line center. So what exactly is this doing for you? you you've replaced like Matt Duchesne with like a slightly better player I think but Mm -hmm. you know to what end 
Mm-hmm. Anyway, so they also signed Gustav Nyquist to two years, $3.185 million. This is, like again, a reasonable deal. It's kind of totally fine middle six forward. But what does this actually like do for your team, right? I, I don't really know. Um, we'll talk more about big picture in a second. There's a couple more deals I want to talk about. Dennis Gurianov, one year, 850K. Gurianov was like kind of highly thought of for his offensive creativity and flair. Um, it's only really manifested in like one playoff run throughout his career. And Luke Shen, uh, three years, $2.75 million per year. Um, what the fuck? <laughs> so that's too much money. Yeah. And I think that that's pretty clear it's too much money. And I say this recognizing that Luke Shen is an admirable human being and did better on a pairing with Morgan Raleigh than I thought he was going to do. But, like, I don't think you should be paying him this much. I mean, look, this isn't even a, oh, we don't like Luke Shen as a player type thing, because Luke Shen has been kind of cast, at least on good teams, as a 60 for a while. He was a 70 mm. on uh, the Tampa Cup team. Uh, in Vancouver, he played nominally with Quinn Hughes on, like, a top pairing, but was actually, like, one of their least played defensemen. And on Toronto, again, he played with Morgan Riley, but was still the 60 by time on ice. Right, yes. like the mar- the market and various teams have kind of come to an agreement that yeah, this guy's a bottom pair defenseman, and you just shouldn't really pay bottom pair defenseman three years, almost three million dollars, unless you're doing it on a team that you know will be bad. The cap hit doesn't matter; they're there to be like a leader and to help young guys perform. But this is a team that's clearly trying to be competitive right now. Yes, um, worth noting, Luke Shen. The last time he made an AAV anywhere close to this was 2016. He's been bouncing around the 1.25 million to 800,000 range for several years now. Again, it's not like we're just raining on him specifically. He's getting paid way more than the market thought he was worth until this summer. Um, And yeah, the rationale for it is, okay, we got Ryan O'Reilly, legendary leader and you know, tough guy who's going to instill certain ethics. Um, And then Luke Shen, consummate professional guy who has prolonged his career, I think longer than many people expected. Yep. um, Because of his commitment to fitness and to being a good citizen. And that's all wonderful. But they made a bunch of developmental decisions at the same time as they were really prioritizing cap relief in the next two years. Which is really curious. Now, Nashville has a very middling prospect pipeline, and don't take my word for it. That's Corey Pronman, who ranked them 16th in the NHL, so right down the middle uh, in his recent evaluations. I don't understand what single purpose is being served here, unless you thought that Matt Duchesne and Ryan Johansson were so detrimental You had to think they were toxic. Yeah, they were so bad for the tone of the locker room that you just had to unload them now because they were going to do actual soul damage to the National Predators franchise. Otherwise, you've made a hell of a lot of effort to construct a team that is probably going to finish in 19th. They seem about as good as they were last year. Mm Mm-hmm. Right? And I guess this is just kind of, it's a weirdly half-pregnant team. Mm -hmm. Right? Like They traded Matias Ekholm at the last trade deadline presumably to kickstart a rebuild, but then acquired a bunch of similarly aged guys. Like maybe, like, can you not keep Ekholm at that point? 
Mm-hmm. I, and this, like, I don't know their cap situation. Maybe they had to get rid of Ekholm no matter what, right? But like, you know, Ekholm's still very did. good. Yeah, but yeah, <laughs> no. I mean, right now they have the money where they could have had him on on their cap sheet. But I thought Ekholm made sense for them. I thought it made a lot of sense for Edmonton. He's helped them. He's a great addition. And at the same time, I thought, okay, Nashville is recognizing that the writing's on the wall. But now they've put in Barry Trotz as their general manager, famous as a very good coach. But I am really curious as to what he's doing. One other note, they do have their core, such as it is, sort of set, based around Roman Yossi, um, sorry, Philip Forsberg, and uh, UC Soros in net. And UC Soros led the league last year in goals saved above expected. So right. he absolutely stood on his head. He's a great goalie, but this team missed the playoffs with him playing out of his goddamn mind. If he even falls back to being very good, that's a lot of goals that they have to make up. Where is this team going to do that? Um, It's not impossible to me that they make the playoffs just because, again, they have a great goalie and they're not like an awful team. No, I mean, they were, but... in, they were in the playoff hunt until like the last weekend of the season, basically. Yeah, if they win a few coin flips, it all goes pretty well. But I think that their collective decision-making this offseason was bad. I think that this was silly, and their overall plan is incoherent. The way this makes sense to me is if they think they can't stomach a rebuild. Yeah. But then it's like, okay, I understand you can't stomach a rebuild in the sense of we don't want to commit to three-plus years where we're not going to make the playoffs at all. Okay, let's start the clock ticking then. What are their results going to be over the next three seasons? I don't think that they're a favorite to make the playoffs now. And in the longer run after that, um, I think that they will eventually bottom out in the way that they're currently trying to avoid. Uh, So, you know, anyway, I'm very low on Nashville's offseason. Even though I don't think they're in a terrible position overall. I just think that the decisions they made made no sense. So. Yeah, it's it's in general, you kind of want to commit to one thing or the other as a as a mm. team. Like it's it's hard to straddle the line. Yeah, this is what I call the Vancouver Canucks problem. Mm-hmm. Look at what has happened to the Vancouver Canucks. Don't be like them. You can be if you're lucky, like the Colorado Avalanche. You can be like the Vegas Golden Knights. You can be like the Montreal Canadiens now, who are at least quite aware of what they're doing but don't be like the vancouver canucks Mm -hmm. all right let's talk about the new jersey devils um 112 points last year second in the metro third in the league lost in carolina lost to carolina in the second round a very strong year for the devils who um were terrible the year prior and were everyone's including our sneaky pick for like hey they were better than you think they just got terrible goaltending and then they were better than everyone thought um, departures. Damon Severson left in a sign and trade to Columbus, eight years, six point two five million AAV for the eightieth overall pick in the twenty twenty three draft that was then used to acquire Tyler Toffoli. Oh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, we talked about Severson last year from Columbus's perspective. Severson has like bonkers good numbers last year. I'm skeptical it was him driving the bus. Mm-hmm. It's worth noting that his competition was pretty light, despite how heavily used he was in terms of minutes played. Um, he has been in more demanding roles in the past and was like fine there, but I do think there's some level of just like the isolates are not accounting for his usage in a particular way, I think. Yeah, um, I would agree with that. And, you know, 
a third round pick feels a little underwhelming to to get back for a player who's like probably still a second pairing defenseman however if it was that and here's the contract that you're going to have to sign him to to retain him i think new jersey sold at the right time i, I agree um hockey this views his career as like he's kind of been a top pairing guy at times a high-end second pairing guy at others that seems reasonable I'm probably like a little bit lower on him like i would say he's like a comfortable second pair guy i wouldn't love him as like he's 100 percent on my top pair mm-hmm. um but you know i could very easily be wrong on that it, 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 there there is like a a certain amount of like i don't totally trust the stats here Mm-hmm. Um, but I could be, you know, as I said, could be overreacting to that. Uh, Ryan Graves also left, signed six years, $4.5 million AAV in Pittsburgh. He looks more like an average defender by by the stats that I've seen. Totally fine to let him walk. This is just like kind of a reasonable decision from New Jersey, I think. Um, so the Devils lost these two defenders, but they have Luke Hughes and Simon Nemec expected to take on bigger full-time roles going forward. So in each case, I think this was the right move. Mm-hmm. Um Severson is more arguable in terms of like, oh, should you keep him or not? Because he, he, I think he's a better player. And, you know, I, I say, oh, I don't trust the stats on him. But, you know, we should put some weight on the fact that the stats view him as, you know, a higher end defenseman. Um, I don't think Columbus is the team to make that signing. We're kind of regardless, even if you think, you know, even if you <laughs> yeah. think Severson is actually like kind of a average-ish first pairing guy, like the 30th best defenseman in the league. I, I don't think that's the right move for Columbus to make, but that, that's an aside. Um, okay, Thomas Tatar is still unsigned. Uh, Jaeger Sharon Govich was traded uh, and then signed in Calgary for 2 by 3.1 for Tyler Toffoli, along with that pick that I mentioned before. Toffoli's making one, one year, $4.25 million remaining. Um, I think, Fulman, you described it well last episode when we talked about um, Calgary. Sharon Govich is like a nice center wing hybrid who is young, but he's just not as good as Tyler Toffoli. No, he is not. And, and, and yeah, uh, I mean, I think this is a great trade for New Jersey. Yeah, this was New Jersey picking off um, Toffoli, knowing that uh, he did not want to sign in Calgary, and Calgary knowing the same, and everyone knowing that, basically, so they just didn't have much leverage. Um, Mackenzie Blackwood signed 2 by 2.23, sorry, 2 by 2.35 million with San Jose. Uh, was average in a backup role last year for the Devils. Miles Wood signed a six-year, $2.5 million deal in Colorado. Interesting deal structure here. The went full Kali Yarncroke, basically. Um, always interesting when depth guys go for, like, kind of long-term. Uh, but we'll talk about that in the Colorado section. The big addition, I would say, is uh, Tyler Toffoli. So Toffoli had an absolutely wonderful year, and I think he's quite good in general. Um, now, on the same logic that we said, oh, we should maybe be skeptical of Severson for this one-year blip where he looks amazing by the stats, uh, we should probably apply some of the same logic to Toffoli. Uh, however, unlike Severson, there are really no holes to poke at all in Toffoli's production last year, and especially in the context of his usage. He was used like a top-line guy. He scored a bunch of goals. The Flames did very well when he was on the ice and quite poorly otherwise. Um one thing that I do think it's worth noting, though, is that Toffoli's best years have all come under Daryl Sutter coach teams, going back to his time in L.A., where, you know, Toffoli's had similar level isolates and advanced stats before to his last year in Calgary. They were in his early career in, uh, in L.A. under Sutter, and then when he left those L.A. teams, he was not a bad player, but he became more like an average-ish NHL forward, right? Um, some of that is, like, 
you know, the vagaries of shooting percentage and teammates finishing your passes. But I wonder if there's something there. So this might just be a perfect match of coach and player, and you won't be as successful in another environment. But this seems like a very good bet for New Jersey to make because this completely shores up their top six and makes it one of the most fearsome in the league. Yeah, I think it's worth taking a moment just to note who is on um, New Jersey's top six because it's spectacular. They've got Jack Hughes, who is on what is already one of the best contracts in the NHL. Hughes is like a legit, no doubt about it, 1C, and he's 22. So it's possible he's going to ascend into the very top tier where we're having conversations about him against guys like McKinnon and even Austin Matthews. Uh, Even if he doesn't do that, though, it's a great deal. Um, Timo Meyer, who they acquired at the trade deadline, had a bit of a bumpy introduction in the playoffs. He's been a very good player for San Jose for a long time. They've got him signed for term at 8.8. I think that's great. Uh, Jesper Bratt, same thing, signed for term. Nico Hischier, second line center to Envy, uh, signed for the next four years. He's only 24. All of those guys are firmly in their prime or even just still ascending. And you can build your top two lines about them. They're supported by Andre Palat, who is older. Um, Tyler Toffoli, who's on a one-year. Um, it's just a really, really strong forward group um, at the top. Like, I I can understand if you have some questions about how they'll hold up against the rigors of playoff competition, maybe. But I think that New Jersey is in an extremely enviable position. Yes, I, I agree. We can kind of... You, you touched on a lot of the extensions that they that they signed. We'll go into them in slightly more detail. Uh, we'll knock a few quick ones out of the way. Thomas Noshek, one year, one million. Totally competent 4C. Completely fine. Eric Schalgren, one year, 775K. This is where he popped up. He's fine as a third goalie. Colin Miller, one by 1.85. He was acquired for a 2025 fifth rounder. I think this is fine uh, to help shore up the defense group, which lost Severson and Graves. I don't expect he'll play a huge role, but he's like good short-term injury insurance. He can play up in the lineup and not completely like fall on his face and die if you have, you know, as I said, short-term injuries. Um, if you can stomach $1.85 million for a guy who will mostly be on the third pair, which New Jersey definitely can, Miller is going to do very well at that particular job. Mm-hmm. So that's completely fine. Meyer, as you mentioned, extended eight years, $8.8 million. Um, Wow, must be nice extending your star <laughs> players for full-term and reasonable cap hits. Mm. Uh, Meyer's a very good comparable for William Nylander, by the way. Um, more play driving, less raw offensive ability. I guess it feels weird to say less playoff performance. Yeah, I, I mean, I know that it goes against the stereotypical narrative, but like William Nylander is an established playoff producer over a large enough sample that I think it's hard to argue with. You can say that like you don't like his style, I guess, at this point, but like he's put the puck in the net. Yeah, it, <laughs> I mean. Uh, Nylander, especially, I thought he was bad in the first round series against Tampa, but then mm-hmm. like he would just have enough moments that went into the net. You're like, okay, I mean, like yeah. <laughs> the rest of it was shit, but like you, you got three points, so like that yeah. that matters, right? And having kind of the raw offensive ability of Nylander kind of it gives you some leeway when the rest of the game isn't going too well. Um, yeah. So fortunately for the Devils, the things that Meyer does better than Nylander are not as obvious as the reverse. So mm-hmm. I expect Meyer to be cheaper than Nylander on an eight-year. Like, I think Nylander's probably a little bit above nine on an eight-year deal. Um, we'll see what happens there. But anyways, this is Meyer's a good point of comparison for Leafs fans. 
Um, Jesper Bratt extended eight years, seven point seven eight seven five million dollars deal. Yeah, I mean, wonder what that's like. You know, again. <laughs> you know what? I think because Timo Meyer uh, is coming off a platform year. You know, he had forty goals, and he was also much discussed as a trade candidate, including by us. I would have liked us to add him instead. We added Ryan O'Reilly. Okay. Um, he probably has more of a reputation than Jesper Bratt does. Jesper Bratt has had 146 points over the last two seasons. He's a very good player. Yep. And I, I think that maybe his name recognition is still not at the point where people know that as much. But here it is. He's a very good player. <laughs> yeah. And in general, you mentioned this with Hughes and Heeshear as well. Um, the Devils went long on both of those guys before they truly broke out. Um, which, and that's paid dividends. Not just because they're clearly worth a lot more than what they signed for now, but because they anchor teammates to similar prices. Yes. I remember at the time of the Jack Hughes contract, a lot of people were like, hey, what are they doing? He hasn't done much yet. But he had done enough to give a hint, and the Devils took a modest bet um, that he was going to live up to his potential, which he pretty much immediately did. And they will be reaping the dividends of that contract for years to come. Yep. And... I think generally speaking, I mean, this goes back to what we've been hammering home. Going long on young players who have shown promise, it often works out. There are times where it doesn't, mm -hmm. right? Um, but most of the time, it'll, it'll be a pretty decent decision. Mm -hmm. uh, they re-signed Eric Kala, three years, $3.15 Solid deal for an average NHL forward. Uh, yeah, I mean... <laughs> The Devils are just a very good team right now with a very bright future because they actually have one of the best uh, U23 core slash prospect pools in the league. Uh, this is a result of ascending so quickly. They went from bad to great very, very fast. And therefore, they still have like guys like Simon Nemec and Luke Hughes who were top five picks, I think. Uh, mm -hmm. And like they haven't even contributed to this team at all. And, and they will going forward. So... Yeah, they're 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 a very very good team. Maybe the most enviable position in the league. Yeah, I would say so. The only thing you have to note about them is that their goaltending is still a little uncertain. It's not as uncertain as it was in years past when some pretty decent Devils teams got totally submarined by goaltending. Um, but Vanacek in the playoffs wobbled a little bit, and they wound up turning to Akira Schmidt, who was sort of an untried option. Um, they're going into this year with those two guys as their goaltenders. And if those two can just find some competence between them, and again, Vanacek was fine in the regular season last year, that will be enough for New Jersey to finish, I suspect, top two um, in their division, just behind the Carolina Hurricanes. Uh, yeah. Okay, so... <laughs> A mere several weeks after we should have covered this, the Colorado Avalanche. Uh, last year, they had 109 points, first in the Central, finished seventh in the NHL. They lost in round one to the Seattle Kraken in seven games in uh, a remarkable upset there. Um, the Avs were perceived as having a bit of a Stanley Cup hangover um, related to injuries and to other issues, and they didn't do as well as they had done the year before, they were still a very good team. And they still are. Let's start with some departures. This was like the summer of unloading middle six centers for the Colorado Avalanche. They did it a lot of times. 
Uh, Evan Rodriguez signed four years at $3 million with Florida. I won't rehash that too much because we talked about it in our Florida segment, but he's a good player who can play either top six left wing or middle six center. And he might have been out of their price range just because Colorado was capped out. JT Comfer signed five years at $5.1 million with Detroit. Again, we talked about that enough in the Red Wing segment. I wouldn't be super sorry to miss that contract. If I were the Colorado Avalanche, I think letting it go was the right choice. I don't know if they had much of a choice. Uh, Alex Newhook excuse me, is an RFA who was traded to Montreal for 31st and 37th plus an AHLD. And then he signed four years at $2.9 million with Montreal. We talked about that just recently in the Montreal segment. That's the great thing about this uh, episode is that as we go further and further on, we don't have to rehash too much. But I'll note that uh, Newhook is sort of a speedy, creative playmaker type. And I think that this is an upside play for sure for Montreal of the kind that Colorado isn't in the position to make. It makes sense that Newhook went from a team that is trying very hard to win right now to a team that is more concerned with whether it can capture value in two or three or four years. Uh, Eric Johnson, who was a mainstay of the Colorado defense for a very long time, signed one year at 3.25 with Buffalo. Uh, He's not a huge loss at this point in his career. He's definitely on the downslope. Lars Eller, yet another third-line center type, uh, was a trade deadline addition, so he wasn't around long enough for them to miss him too much. He's historically been a solid middle 6C, and can, he can still hang in defensively, but the end is probably coming into view for him somewhat, and his production is flagging. Uh, Matt Nito, or Nieto, signed two years at 900K, also with Pittsburgh. He's a fourth-line energy guy. Okay, additions and extensions. So we mentioned the Nashville end of the transaction. Um, The Avalanche traded Alex Galchenyuk's rights, so effectively very little, uh, to Nashville for Ryan Johansson at 50% retention. Johansson put up 28 points in 55 games last year. That is not what you want at that value for sure. Um, And he hasn't played since February when Quinn Hughes clipped him with a skate blade and cut tendons in his right leg. Now, I'm no physician, but I think tendons in your leg are important. Yeah, you need like, them. You that's want a, them. That's like a pretty grisly injury, honestly. Like that. Yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> one of those times you're like, fuck, yeah, we, we play with knives on our feet. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. And sometimes I find myself thinking it's crazy. It doesn't happen more. Yeah. Because like the risk is always right there. But yeah, anyway, it's scary. Um that's a concerning injury for any player, and it came at the end of a down year at age 31 for a guy making $8 million. So, you know, I gave Nashville a hard time, but I could see why that might play a role in their decision-making on this. Um, but Johansson's still a very good playmaker, and he's a year removed from a hot shooting season. That's on put up 26 goals and 63 points. If he's made a full recovery, I can certainly see him giving Colorado solid middle six value at this price. Right, and... Colorado kind of has earned some benefit of the doubt with their pro scouting. Mm-hmm. They, they've made enough good bets on these guys that, you know, yeah, I, I, there's a reasonable chance. And especially with the other players that they have, that they can insulate Johansson enough to, to get like essentially replaced what JT Comfort did for them. Yeah. And right, that's I, that goal. would be great for them. Yeah. yeah. I, I think, you know, they may not win multiple rings or have multiple Stanley cup final appearances but they might that would get them in that same conversation with tampa but the 2022 colorado avalanche team that won the championship was obscenely stacked in skater talent 
And you have to give some credit to the organization that they got to that position, even though they've now had to shed a lot of that talent to get cap compliant. Um, so yeah, we'll give them some credit there. Um, in a more interesting move, where again, I'm trying to give them some benefit of the doubt, they traded a second round pick to Tampa for forward Ross Colton. And then they signed Colton to four years at $4 million per. So he's one of those versatile supporting forwards who churn through Tampa Bay seemingly all the time. He has 38 goals over the past few seasons, and he's a go-to-the-dirty-area supporting forward. A type that Colorado can certainly make use of. I like him as a player. I think that price tag is a little bit rich, um, to be honest with you, for the type of player that he is. However, it's not crazy, and I could see it playing out. Sorry, when I said 38 goals, I meant to say over the past two years. So just so I'm clear on that, 16 last year, 22 the year before. Um... They probably need to get a little bit more out of him than Tampa did, I think, but I could see them doing that. Mm -hmm. Agreed. This is an interesting extension. Bowen Byram, two years at $3.85 million. So scouts see Byram as a potential star defender, like top-pairing defender legitimately, and he's been well thought of since his draft year. Um, he's super mobile, very talented. His isolates were not very good in half a season this year. And he's missed a lot of time with concussions already. He just turned 22. There's a pretty good chance that this looks like an obscene steal by the end of the contract. Um, and then they have to give him a raise. There's also a chance that this just doesn't work out. And we end up talking about him in terms of missed potential. But I think that this is going to be a very good deal over the next two years for Colorado. This, Yeah, this feels like a bridge deal that kind of suits all parties. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it sets up Byram to, hopefully once he's cashed in on his potential, to really claim a big term deal. And it also gives the Avalanche a chance of capturing some value now in their complete go-for-it mode, where they'll be relying on him, probably. Um, as we mentioned, they signed forward Miles Wood, six years at $2.5 He's kind of a speedy power forward type, who's good for about 15 goals a year and somewhat fewer assists. That's kind of all he does. But again, this is a bet on pro scouting. Given his injury history, I find it kind of interesting that Colorado wanted to give term to a depth guy to this extent. That said, he doesn't have to be that good for $2.5 to pay out for them. And if he's better than expected, suddenly they've locked in value. Um... Jonathan Duran, we talked about one year at 825000 Um, If he doesn't recapture some capacity to score on his, in his own right, this might be his last NHL contract. Like, I hate to say it, but it's true. If he does, you know, this was once a very, very well thought of prospect and player, and he's been productive in the NHL before, so... Maybe there's some hope. From Colorado's perspective, this is a zero-risk bet that has some upside. Mm -hmm. They signed uh, Frederick Olofsson a year at 750, 13th forward, and they extended Jack Johnson one year at 775K. Hell yeah. Jack Johnson has triumphed over all you haters and losers. Okay. Some other notes about the Colorado Avalanche. Gabriel Landeskog, who missed all of last season is expected to miss all of this season too with a knee cartilage transplant. 
obviously we're now at the point where Landis Cog's career is in question, unfortunately. He certainly wants to come back. Everything I've ever heard about him suggests he's going to try very hard to do so. Um, people who have been following the NHL in recent years probably heard about a situation like this and immediately thought, okay, Kucherov maneuver, where he comes back for game one of the playoffs but is not on Colorado's cap sheet during the regular season. Um, maybe, but certainly Landis Cog's injury history is now pretty severe and we're definitely in the, at the point of questions of what is his, the rest of his career going to look like. Right. I mean, I think it's a, it's a lot to ask someone to be out for like basically two years and then just jump into the playoffs. Like I, I, yeah, maybe I'm not conspiratorially minded enough, but I, I think they're kind of playing this straight. Yeah, no, to be clear, I don't think that they're kidding or exaggerating or anything like that. I'm just noting that the timeline might align to make that possible. But, like, very clearly he needs um, some surgical assistance with his knee. And I'm sure he would be playing if he could. Um, Valerie Nichushkin left the Avalanche series with the Seattle Kraken for personal reasons after a team doctor found a heavily intoxicated woman in his room. The league has said he is not under investigation and is eligible to play next season, so we will assume that he will do so. Nishushkin is a very productive core forward for the team. And that's about all I can say that's useful on that point. Mm -hmm. um, the Avs are still a contender. They've got Nathan McKinnon, who is top five in the world. They've got Miko Rantanen, who's not far behind. And they've got Kale McCarr, who was the best offensive defenseman on the planet. Uh, and they still have an enviable defense group. If their health is good enough and their bets pay out, they could win the Stanley Cup this year. Yeah, no I question. think people don't recognize the degree to which their year got kind of screwed by injury last year. Mm -hmm. um, I think healthy, this is, you know, one of the three best teams in the league. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, it's it's unfortunate that Landis Cog's health hangs over all of this. Um, if they get him back in anything like his previous form, that's a game changer. But obviously that's a lot to expect. Still, they're a very good team. And the other thing is that because they have... Um, Kale McCarr and Nathan McKinnon and Miko Rantanen who are respectively 24, 27, and 26 um, they're going to have more bites at the apple even as they cycle through supporting players. Like this is not a team that is immediately facing a collapse even though they have declined from their previous heights. Okay <laughs> Let's get to the New York Islanders. They had 93 points, 15th in the NHL, 4th in the Metro. They did actually make the playoffs, but they lost in round one to the Carolina Hurricanes in six games. So what did they do in terms of departures? They traded Josh Bailey in a second to Chicago for future considerations, and Chicago then bought Josh Bailey out, and he remains unrestricted. Possibly he's done. Bailey used to be a versatile forward who could slot comfortably in any team's top six. But his production and his defense declined to the point where he was basically sub-replacement. It, it's uh, kind of hard to overstate how bad uh, Josh Bailey was defensively last season. It was terrifying. Uh, to, to the point where he was almost unplayable. And, and like where you wonder, it's like, was that a blip? Was that an injury? What was going on there that he got that severe? But it just it was not working. According to uh, Dom Lachishan's model at The Athletic... 
losing Bailey is worth like positive eight goals on the year or something like that. That, that is incredible. It's stunning. Yeah. Well, anyway, so there's that. Um, Zach Parise may or may not be a departure. He's apparently still contemplating his future, whether he wants to retire or come back. I suspect if he does want to come back, the Islanders will sign him. He's just turned 39. Um, but if this is the end, he finished pretty respectably. He put up 21 goals and 13 assists while still being a regular penalty killer. And while the end could come at any second at his age, um, in terms of like a sharp decline, the Isles can't replace that for that price. Like if he's, if he takes a year and a million, like I'm sure they'd be happy to have him back and just to hope that he can fend off father time for another year. Um, additions and extensions. Uh, nothing really in the way of additions, but several extensions. So they extended goalie Ilya Sorokin, eight years at 8.25 million. This is another future dated contract that begins 2024. He's an exceptionally good goaltender. He's very athletic. If he's as good as he was last year through the life of this contract, this is just great. Will he be that good for nine seasons? Well, I don't know if I'd want to make that bet, but goalies, right? I'm not sure they yeah. have a choice though, right? Like, nope. <laughs> you, you get you get a goalie like um, like Sorokin, mm-hmm. and yeah, like it's 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 a bit like the Matthews thing, but goalie performance is less consistent, of course, which is makes it harder, makes it a little more risky to go eight years. But yeah, yeah. It, there's just not a ton you can do. Yeah, absolutely. Like massive term contracts for goalies are usually a mistake, but Sorokin is in the class of goalie where you you kind of have to do it. And if he can lock in that kind of performance, that's huge. Um, they extended their other goalie, Semyon Varlamov, four years at $2.75 million. Very fascinating decision to give four years to your 35-year-old backup goaltender. It, it, very weird. <laughs> They're paying $11 million for goaltending. That's a lot. Yeah, and like you've locked in Sorokin as the guy who is going to be your star workhorse. Now, I mean, I guess this enables you to give him some rest without totally sacrificing everything. And Varlamov has been a good 1B, and he can kind of hold the fort in the event of an injury. Will he do that for another four years? When he's 35? As of right now? I don't know. Well, and if this is a 35-plus deal, it's, like, harder to get out of, right? You can't... I don't know if it is, but, like... You can't buy it out then. You know, you can't just send them to yeah, the miners. Yeah, no, it is. Like... It is a, a 35 plus deal. And um, he has a no trade in the first two years. And then it's uh, a half the league no trade clause after yeah, that. So they, so. I mean, maybe they, maybe Lamorello just thinks like, oh, we can get out of this if this goes bad without major issues. But maybe it, it, it feel, backup goalie just feels like the situation where you churn, right? Yeah. Especially when you have like a, you know, a, a starter like Sorokin. Yeah, and, you know, I could see two perspectives on this. One of them is that, okay, if Sorokin does go down, we need someone who can hold us in playoff contention because we have no margin there. Um, We barely made the playoffs last year, the year before we missed. Um, The flip side is, without Sorokin, this team is not a threat to anybody. So you're kind of, (laughs) like, barely holding it together. I, like, I, I guess it's like, okay, if Sorokin gets injured in January and is out for two months, then you're glad you signed this deal, maybe. But I think that that's pretty dubious. 
Um, they extended defender Scott Mayfield seven years at $3.5 million. He's a solid top four right defenseman. He took top minutes for the tough minutes for the Owls last year, and he tried his best to hold up pairings with Alexander Romanov and Sebastian Ajo. Not the good one. Um, the good one plays for Carolina. Uh, Mayfield is big, physical, and not super fast, but he's useful defensively. This AAV is actually like pretty good for him right now. It's just the Isles seem to love taking on insane term risk every time they get the chance. And he's going to turn 31 in October. So who knows? Uh, and finally, they extended Pierre Engvall. Seven years at $3 million. Um, I like Pierre Engvall a lot. I think $3 million is like fair-ish value for him. Maybe in this year's limited center market, someone would have given him more than that. But he's a third liner and probably not a real center most of the time. And he's 27. Yeah, I, I'm i like one of the you know, founding members now of the Pierre Engvall <laughs> fan club, because I think he, he is quite good, but, like, uh, I, I don't know. Three million is, as you said, three million is fine, but seven years is just, like, a lot can go wrong in seven years. And he's not a real setter. No. I like him. I think he's a good transition player. Like, okay, let's put it this way. I could see this being fine. Maybe. Like, it's not inconceivable to me that this will be an okay deal. Um, it's not great when the best I've been able to say about these contracts is maybe it'll be okay. Um, how good does Lou Lamorello think this team is? Is the question that's going through my mind. He's thought it was better than I did um, in the past, and he's got a couple of conference finals runs to show for it a few years back. So good for him. And the Islanders did look somewhat better over the last 30 games of the year after they got Bo Horvat. But that means they were 14th in expected goals. Like, I'm, they were not, you know, beating the world here. They were just fine. Um, in its last two years, this team has two playoff wins, not series wins, games. And it's averaged 89 points. The team is capped out. None of its major commitments expire until 2025 at the earliest. Uh, the Islanders have committed $44.3 million against the cap in 2028-29 to Matt Barzell, who will be 31, Bo Horvat, going to be 33, Engvall, 32, Pulak, 33, Adam Pellick, 34, Scott Mayfield, 35, Sorokin, 33. Now, the cap ought to be a lot higher by 2028, like maybe it'll be as high as $110 million. But that is still a third of your total more than a third. And Josh Bailey, who they just paid a second to get rid of at $5 million because he was dead weight, is currently 33. The term risk hanging over this team is fucking insane. And it's actually nuts to me that Lou Lamorello was allowed to make a lot of these decisions. Yeah, I, I mean, they're, they're just very boxed in to this pretty average team. Like, I don't know, they're... Their path to being relevant is maybe we go on a Cinderella run. But, like, mm -hmm. Cinderella runs are defined by being unlikely. Yes. So where and, you does... know, you've got Sorokin. That's it. That's, that's what you got. You got Sorokin. Yeah, like, where does this leave them? I just it, just don't yeah. think it's it's going to be much of anything. Yeah. Um, some related notes. The Islanders haven't picked in the first round since 2019 because they've been trading their first round picks. 
Corey Pryman ranks their pipeline for 22 and under players as 30th in the NHL. There is not a lot of help coming. Um, I've defended Lou Lamorello in the past. I think that his performance over the past couple of years has been dreadful. And I think it should have gotten him fired. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it just seems like it's a ton of moral hazard here, right? <laughs> like, yeah. He's, he's like, signing checks that he won't have to be around to, to cash. Yeah, like there's there's no other way to describe it. Look, the man is 80 years old. He's had an unimpeachable career in terms of success long term. Hall of Fame executive. But the decisions that he's made here are going to leave his successor with a huge mess to clean up. I would be furious if I were an Islanders fan. I would actually be more mad as an Islanders fan than a fan of any of the other teams we're going to talk about in this series. And not because they're the worst team, they are not, but because their hope of winning a Stanley Cup seems more remote than ever. Also, those conference final runs were with Coach Barry Trotz, who they don't have anymore, mm-hmm. just as an aside. Anyway, that's it. I have nothing really reassuring to say about them, except to note that they still have some good players and a really good goalie. <clears throat> All right, the New York Rangers. 107 points, third in the Metro Division, ninth in the NHL, and they lost round one to the New Jersey Devils in seven games. So who left? Vladimir Tarasenko signed for a year and $5 million with the Ottawa Senators. He was reasonably productive for the Rangers after coming over midseason. He's still a good sniper, even if he doesn't do a ton else. So he's certainly something of a loss, and we'll talk about him a bit more in the Ottawa context in the next team section. Patrick Kane is probably gone. He's still unsigned and he can still pass and he's still of use on the power play, but he's like a borderline liability at 5v5 now. And Iceless would say it's worse than borderline. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of talk about how bad Kane was on Chicago last year. And then a lot of counter discussion of like, oh, you know, that's just because Chicago has been terrible. He'll turn it on for a contender. And he didn't really turn it on for a contender. I, I mean, he's had a great career, but he's just cooked. Yeah. He can pass still, but the amount of stuff that you have to suffer to get his assists, I don't think is worth it anymore. And we'll see what contract he eventually signs for, if any. I assume he'll sign somewhere, but yeah, I wouldn't want to be the one to do it. Uh, Yaro Halak is gone. The greatest 1B goalie of all time. I think he should have like a little display in the Hockey Hall of Fame. for just like <laughs> the platoon god. Um, I don't know if they have sections like segregated by like position, <laughs> but like if they have any like goalie exhibit, they should have like a small halak thing like just behind it. <laughs> that would be perfect. Um, so yeah, they would have been taking him in that role once again to be one B. At this point, he would be just a clear backup to Igor Shesterkin, who's well established as their strong starter. Why didn't they sign him to four years, two point seven five million? We should ask Lou Lamorello. Um, The reason they didn't here is that they decided to sign Jonathan Quick instead, which was a bit interesting to me. Halak is 38, but Quick is 37 and is coming off a worse year, so whatever. But hey, goalies. Quick was also cheap, as we'll discuss. Um, Another departure, Nico Mikula. We mentioned him in the Florida segment because he signed for three years at 2.5 million with them. I just want to note that I am uncomfortable with how little I know about this. Nico Mikola is like the most EA NHL crew, like 
fake player name I've heard in my life. I, I, I could not tell you anything about this man. He could be anybody. Like, I, like yeah. Nico Mikola might, not... might listen to this podcast. We, he might. We, we so, don't know. We're sorry for offending you by pointing out your anonymity, but I don't think any player who has a 2 million plus AV was unknown to me except him um, in this whole series that we're doing. And I just do not have a take on him. Also, they fired head coach Gerard Gallant. Uh, I think there was some perception that he was not developing the young players as well as hoped, and we will talk about that. Additions and extensions. So they signed forward Blake Wheeler to one year at 800000 That is a remarkable discount from what, I, from what I suspect his market would have been. Um, I'm assuming Wheeler took less to sign with the contender. But he put up 55 points last year. Usually that gets you more than league minimum. Mm-hmm. Um, so Wheeler is in decline at age 36. He's losing some of his speed. But he's still huge. He's 6'5", and he can still pass. And he was a legitimate star in his prime. I think this is a great deal for the Rangers. If the Leafs signed Blake Wheeler at a year at 800 k I would be really excited. Because I think there's a real chance to capture value there, even if he's declining. Um, they signed Eric Gustafson who I've talked about and kind of rained on in previous segments. One year at 825. Why not? I like the idea that you're just like the premier Eric Gustafson hater <laughs> out there. Eric Gustafson's just going out there living his best life. And, and, and you're just here to shit on him. Gustafson, again, as I'm contractually obligated to do, I'm going to point out he had, a, he had a good year last year in Washington. No idea if it's real. Coaches never seem to think it is. So, yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens in, uh, in New York. I know if it's real. It's not. He's a fraud. <laughs> <laughs> He's fine. Um, so with regards to Gustafson, look, Adam Fox dominates the Rangers' power play for obvious reasons because he's Adam Fox. But the Rangers can put Gustafson on the second power play unit instead of Jacob Trubo or Keandre Miller if they want to, and it will be fine. And they can play him on the third pair, and it will probably also be fine. And this price is negligible. Uh, they signed Nick Benino one year at 800000 It feels like Benino has been around for 1,000 years. Um, I think that there are scrolls in medieval France of Nick Benino playing third-line center. But he's only 35. Uh, he's still doing his thing as a dependable defensive forward who scores about 10 goals a year. He was flipped from San Jose last season back to the place of his greatest achievements, which was Pittsburgh. And then he suffered a lacerated kidney, which sounds... Very bad. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, it feels like to, to suffer a lacerate, like, okay, so again, I'm not an anatomy expert, but your kidney's inside you. And so What order, happened? Yeah. So in order to suffer, <laughs> suffer a laceration to that, like, doesn't there need to be, like, a fucking massive flesh wound, too? Yeah. I, like, I'm envisioning someone getting, like, slashed with a sword. Yeah. Like, that's why I think, and I, like, oh, anyway, that scares me and makes me uncomfortable. Um, I hope he's feeling 100%. And if he is, he's a perfectly respectable fourth-line center for the Rangers. Um, he's a little old and past his prime, but it's the Rangers. They kind of have to do that because that's just what they do. Um, speaking of old and past his prime, Jonathan Quick is their backup goalie this year. One year, 825000 He hasn't been great in recent years, except for one surprise resurgence in 21-22. But okay. If Shesterkin is healthy in the playoffs, Quick doesn't really matter. If Shesterkin is not healthy in the playoffs, I think the Rangers are dead. So, you know? 
Um, so, so this is a bit like yeah. the Brian Elliott in Tampa last year, right? Where it's like, okay, yeah. I mean, there's some downside here, but as long as they, as long as Quick doesn't, you know, fuck them over to the extent that they're not making the playoffs, it, it's not that material. Yeah, just be good enough to get us there in your 20 games that you play. So the Rangers actually just um, in this past week. Uh, signed left wing Alexis Lafreniere to an extension. Two years at $2.325 million. So you probably recall Alexis Lafreniere was drafted first overall and came into the league with considerable fanfare. Right. So The Athletic will do these um, series of like, okay, how, how does this newest number one pick compare to like the other recent number one picks as prospects? <clears throat> and I always find it interesting to track it through time because you can see Lafreniere's mediocre NHL career impacting how he was viewed as a prospect. Yes. Like in successive years, he goes down on the scout in the scouts estimation as a prospect. Obviously that can't really happen because all the information about Lafreniere as a prospect exists, right? Like now if you change your opinion on him as a prospect, you are just incorporating new information in there, which is weird. Um, But yeah, I say that only to point out that he was incredibly highly touted. Yes. Um, I said in our most recent episode that he was the most highly touted prospect between Matthews and Connor Bedard. I stand by that. And if you weren't there, trust me, there was a lot of chatter about him. I'm not even a prospect guy, and I heard all about what a good player Lafreniere was going to be. And this was only in 2020. It's not like he's 100 years old. But it hasn't gone as well as hoped. Um, he... Produced somewhat last year. 16 goals, 23 assists, 39 points. Um, Sabres Kevin, who is both an astute observer of the game and who also likes to dunk on the Rangers as a Sabres fan whenever he gets the opportunity, has pointed out to me that his primary assist rate is very unimpressive for a guy who's supposed to be a good playmaker. Um, His foot speed is not dazzling, which might be preventing him from getting the space that he used to dominate in the queue. Um... Gerard Gallant typically used him on the second power play unit, which probably cost him a bit of production. And it's a bit tricky to find a spot for him. This has been a point of contention in the Rangers fan base, so I'm going to mention it a little bit. Um, Four of the spots on the Rangers' first power play unit are spoken for. So the point man is Adam Fox. Right side are Timmy Panarin. Left side, Mika Zibanejad. And net front is Chris Kreider, leaving the bumper spot, where Gallant typically preferred a right shot. Um, it was mostly Vincent Trocek this past year, and this year it could be Trocek or Blake Wheeler. Um, the Rangers' power play was good last year. 7th in the NHL, 24% conversion rate, and dominant by XG, and it was 4th the year before. To claim a spot on a top power play unit for a contending team, you have to be really good. And this is kind of what Lafreniere has had to deal with, which is that 5v5, um, the top left wings on the team are Panarin and uh, Chris Kreider, and the power play uh, unit is established, and the team is trying to win. It's not like, like this year, Connor Bedard can be effectively the first line center in all respects for Chicago, because what else are they doing? The Rangers are not in that position. They've been trying to win. Um, And so that's certainly given him more to deal with. At the same time, Lafreniere has not forced a decision on them the way that great players tend to do. Um, and that's just a fact. Um, now, the new coach is Peter Laviolette, who I'm sure you remember. He seems to have coached pretty much everyone in the Metro Division at some point in his career. 
That's not literally true, but it is emotionally true. Um, if Lafreniere doesn't find his footing this season under Laviolette, I feel like a trade might be coming. I mean, it seems like it has to head that way eventually, right? I mean, this is um, yeah. this is like a deal you sign in order to trade later from the team perspective. Yeah, yeah like after this season, you know, there's some player, let's say, in the Western Conference who is also considered something of a disappointment in a classic change of scenery trade. And maybe you flip one for the other. But, you know, I'm thinking, you know, there's an upside case where it's like Dylan Strom was perceived as not really achieving very much in Arizona. And finally, he got flipped to Chicago and he's done pretty well ever since. Um, but yeah, Lafreniere was supposed to be a game changing franchise player. It is feeling less and less likely by the day that that's going to happen. Mm hmm. Okay, uh, so yeah, I mentioned they hired Peter Laviolette. He feels like a classic New York Rangers hire. He has been around enough that we know a bit about him. He's very demanding. He likes an aggressive forecheck, and then he traps when he gets the lead. Is that going to fix anything? I have no idea. Some other thoughts. Uh, I wanted to mention the other highly touted Rangers draft pick, which is Capo Caco. He has come into his own a bit with 40 points last year, and he looks like a stronger play driver than Lafreniere. The main thing he has over Lafreniere, aside from size, is that he plays the right side instead of the left, which means that he could start the season at first line right wing legitimately if he impresses Lafreniere. Um, he actually started the last season before losing Galan's trust and sliding back down, but it's not that hard to envision him playing on a line with Panarin and Zibanejad, in which case a breakout year for Capo Caco is very possible, especially 5v5. Um, each of the last couple of seasons, I found myself thinking that the Rangers aren't a true contender, and both years they just cruised to a playoff spot anyway, in defiance of my feelings. Uh, they have arguably the best goal in the world in Igor Shesterkin, and a very fearsome top power play unit, and those are great things to have. And I actually like their offseason. They didn't sign any bad deals, because they couldn't afford to. And they didn't double down on the Patrick Kane thing, which is kind of what I expected. Yeah. I don't think that they're as good as New Jersey or Carolina. I, I agree with that. Um, I think, I think yeah, they're, they've done this enough that they're clearly a good team, and they've actually gotten better at the play-driving aspect. Like, there was a year or so ago, or maybe two years ago, where they were, like, genuinely just below water at mm -hmm. everything except shooting percentage, save percentage, and, like, power play. That's not the case anymore. Um, yeah. But I, I agree. I think they are not as... I don't view their skaters as well as... Um, as Carolina or New Jersey's. And there's also some questions about uh, some of their star players in the playoffs, or Temi Panarin specifically, had a, had a really rough playoffs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they do rely on him. Um, also, you know, a lot of their core forwards, Panarin 31, Zibanejad 30, Kreider 32, Trocek 30, are in the range where they're still probably going to be good. But if they get a little bit worse, then that... Makes things difficult for the Rangers, for sure. And then they need the young players to come up and grab spots um, to replace them. That hasn't happened yet. So we'll see. Uh, yeah, they should make the playoffs, though. Yeah, I think they seem like a very comfortable third in the Metro. Yeah. Like, it's always easy to say this before the season. And then, you know, something crazy is always going to happen because hockey's like that. But I strongly suspect the first three in the Metro are going to be Carolina, New Jersey, and the Rangers in that order. 
And if you asked me to make a change to those three, the first change I would make is New Jersey comes first over Carolina, and the Rangers are still in third. Okay, the Ottawa Senators, our little brother has something to say. 86 points, 6th in the Atlantic, 21st in the NHL. They missed the playoffs. Um, departures. They traded forward Alex DeBrincat to the Detroit Red Wings for a conditional first. It's probably the lower of Detroit's or Boston's. It's a little more involved in the conditions, but you can kind of treat it like that if you're trying to guess how good it's going to be. Um, they also got forward Dominic Kubalik, uh, Donovan Sobrango, and a 2024 fourth. Um... The conditions on the pick are a little bit more involved, and I will spare you the pain of having to hear me recite that on the air, I think. Look at Cat Friendly if you really want to know. The bigger likelihood is that they're going to get the worse of Detroit and Boston's picks, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's like late teens to the 20s. Mm -hmm. um, I also suspect it's going to be Boston's for the record. Uh, DeBrinket, as discussed before, is a legit NHL sniper coming off a bit of a down year. Uh, Kubelik is also a sniper, who they're getting. Um, he could chip in some goals, and he doesn't really drive play. But 20 goals, 25 assists, 45 points, which is what he produced last year, would not be bad for them. Uh, Sobrango looks like an NHLer. This is not an awful return. It's just, I think with hindsight, you can say they wish they had the 7th overall pick, and Kevin Kurczynski, who the Hawks selected with it, rather than what they're getting back. Mm -hmm. Unless Detroit and Boston both simultaneously fall apart for the next two years, in which case the pick is going to be higher than anyone expects. Um, another departure, Cam Talbot signed one year and one million with LA, as we discussed. He was a huge disappointment for the Sens last year. If the Sens have Philip Gustafson, who they gave up for Talbot, and who was spectacularly good for Minnesota... They probably would have made the playoffs. Yeah, I'd say uh, Ottawa's they, biggest issues last year. Bad depth, and I don't think they had very consistent goaltending either. Yeah. They're, they're not, you know, like, all kidding aside, I'm going to try to be somewhat objective about the Ottawa Senators. They're not a bad team, really, outside of the net. They have some issues, and depth is one of them. But in skater talent, they're, they're getting respectable. So... Uh, in pursuit of an improvement in net, they signed Junis Corposalo, five years at $4 million. We talked about him previously. He's been good recently. I don't know <laughs> if I love this bet. It's not insane. And if he becomes like a 1A kind of type, this is already paid for itself, basically. Yeah, I mean, for at this price range, it's impossible to buy yourself certainty in the goalie market. Like, the Leafs saw mm -hmm. that last year when they made two bets, one on Murray, one on Samsonov. One paid out, one didn't. Mm -hmm. right and like that that's what you get in this price range you're, you you get a guy with some warts yeah um and they've taken a bit of term risk here um they have an otherwise pretty clean cap sheet so it's not the end of the world even if it does go awry and you know if it works out for them then they'll be sitting pretty um they signed as i mentioned vladimir tarasenko one year at five million i kind of like this for them certainly no term risk Tarasenko can still score, and they do need that, so good for them. Um, they extended Travis Hamonic, who's the right defenseman, two years at 1.1. They like him for his veteran presence. They've been very clear about that. He's not more than a third-pair guy at this point, but he's paid and used like one, so that's fine. 
Uh, Eric Brandstrom is another right defenseman. He got a year at $2 million. And once again, we are paying a visit to the Isle of Sheltered third-pair defensemen. He's about to turn 24, and he still looks like he's blocked on the Sens, who seem to be pretty content with their top four of Thomas Chabot, Jacob Chikrin, Jake Sanderson, and Artem Zub. So he may have to wait for another opportunity that will come with a trade at some point. He feels to me like he's in the Travis Dermott position right now. Yeah. Um, that top four, by the way, is like pretty good for what it's worth. Yes. Um, all of Shabbat, Chikra, and Sanderson, and Zub, I think, are legit chop, top four guys. Yeah, I yeah, I well, we'll talk about this in a minute, but I think the Sens are shaping up fairly nicely, and a big factor in feeling good about them is that they have a new owner finally. Um, Michael Anlauer is the new owner of the Sens as of this summer. I don't know anything about him except that he's rich. But the odds are that he's going to be better than Melnick because Melnick was maybe the worst owner in pro sports. Um, certainly the worst in the NHL for my money. Um, Cheap and, and dumb is money. a bad combination. <laughs> you can be one or the other. Yes. And so even if Ann Lauer is just like an average-ish um, owner, he will be an improvement and he will dispel some of the existential gloom over the franchise. Um, just by virtue of the fact that he just bought them. He presumably wants to own them and to do something with them. Um, other thoughts. The most exciting thing for Ottawa is that they appear to have a bona fide franchise C in Tim Stutzla. Yep. He put up 39 goals, 51 assists. Um, sorry, I did the math wrong on that. But, like, he is very productive. And I think that they can confidently build around him as a first-line center. He's also signed at $8.35 million for extensive term. As we said, go long on young players, and it tends to work out. Yep. If Stutzla ascends to being a top 10 center uh, in the NHL, and he's not far off as it is, Ottawa could be legitimately pretty fearsome. The other most exciting thing uh, is the possibility that Ottawa is going to get back Josh Norris. So Norris put up 35 goals, 20 assists, 55 points in 21-22. But injuries limited him to all of eight games last season. If he comes back similar or better to what he was a couple seasons back, they might have a real two-headed monster at sea locked up for term. If it turns out that Norris was basically just on a shooting heater for that one year, and he didn't drive play that well, uh, they might not love his contract quite so much. But as we've been saying this whole episode, going for term on good young players is usually the right call. Um... Ottawa provided one of the rare counter examples when they overpaid Colin White a few years back, but generally speaking, it's the good call. Mm -hmm. Other fun things that are happening, a full year of Jacob Chikrun, if he can stay healthy, and another step forward for Jake Sanderson, who just turned 21 and is already like a pretty good defenseman. Um, also, Jacob Bernard Docker is a prospect on defense, so they are moving towards their dream of an entirely Jake-based defense group, which <laughs> I think is special for them. So uh, Ian Tullock, friend of the pod, fan of the pod, listener of the pod, pointed out to me that the Sens finished below expected last year. Some of that is just Brady Kachuk being Brady Kachuk, though. So I don't think we can ever expect him to finish at a league average rate. No. Or if he does, it's a shooting heater for him. Yeah, I, I, I mean, when you watch Brady Kachuk play, you just see him like cram a bunch of shots that have like very little chance of going in. In a way that will like fool public XG models. 
that don't mm-hmm. really have like goaltender positioning relative to puck incorporated into them. Exactly. And so it doesn't mean that he's not a very good player. No, he's, he's he great. Is. He's a very good player. Yeah. But it just means that I don't think our expectation should be that he finishes at his XG rate. Um, the Sens don't really have any bad contracts unless Norris or Corposalo blow up on them. And I'm not saying that either necessarily will. Um, they have graduated most of their incoming talent. And they didn't draft until the fourth round this year. And they haven't made the playoffs in six seasons. So if this is the core of a true contender, and it might well be, we should see signs of it this year and probably a playoff spot, even in the Atlantic, which is tough. If that doesn't happen and they plateau at like 85 points, um, I think one or both of Pierre Dorian or DJ Smith is getting fired. Yeah, like this this is the put up or shut up year. Yeah. Um, and it's tough because like I look at the Atlantic and I think that they're the sixth best team. In which case, they're not going to make it. But they are on the upswing. And they do have a lot to be excited about. So it's like, this team is going to make the playoffs in the next few years. The question is, does it make it this year and save the management team and or the coach? And give signs that it's going to be more than just a playoff team, but an actual bona fide contender. Yeah, I mean, we mentioned the addition. So they weren't that close to being a playoff team last year. The additions that they made, basically, are some depth pieces and then really just internal growth from Stutzla again and, and Sanderson and, and Zoo. Jane Pinto, I should also add. He yeah. didn't uh, do anything. He's still unsigned, but they will sign him, I'm sure. Yeah. So there, there are still a lot of questions, but this team definitely has playoff upside. Sure. Yeah. I think, you know, I give Sens fans a hard time because they're super annoying. But, you know, they have a lot to be excited about, and good for them. Okay, the last team in this episode. Who, I, You know what? They do have some things to be excited about, but it's more that they seem to be finally facing reality, and reality is bleak. Mm-hmm. But the first step is admitting you have problems, and boy, do they. The Philadelphia Flyers. 75 points, 7th in the Metro, 26th in the NHL, and unsurprisingly, they did not make the playoffs with those results. Um, departures. They traded left defenseman Kevin Connaughton, left defenseman Ivan Provorov, and right winger Hayden Hodgson to the Kings and the Blue Jackets in that three-team trade that we've adjusted the other two sides of before. Out of this, they got Cal Peterson, two years at $5 million per, Sean Walker, who's a defenseman, one year at $2.65 million, and prospect Helga Granz, uh, a 2023 first, with the, which Philly used on the prospect Oliver Bonk, which sounds like I made him up, but I didn't. Uh, Radic Bonk's uh, son. Yes, he's bonking. Uh, and they got the Blue Jackets second in either 2024 or 2025. CBJ has to de- decide at the 2024 draft. So let's go ba- go through what they got for this uh, this whole sprawling transaction. Um. Kevin Connaughton is a 7th defenseman. Hodgson's a quadruple-A player, so whatever. Provorov, we discussed in the Blue Jackets section. He never became the top pair of stud people hoped he would. Um, note that it's the Kings who are retaining on Provorov, not Philly. Philly is away clean from this contract, except for their return. Cal Peterson, as we said, is a cap dump. He absolutely fell apart last season and wound up in the AHL. Since the Flyers are now tanking, they can certainly afford to give him some time. 
in the NHL if they're so inclined alongside Carter Hart. Um, if he recaptures his form, he might eventually become tradable down the line. If he doesn't, he'll help them draft higher. So really, it's impossible to lose when you're already losing so much. Uh, Sean Walker is a fine enough lower pair defenseman. He's a trade candidate. Helga Granz is a toolsy prospect who has yet to put it all together and who may not amount to much. Um, yeah, I think this is a great rebuild trade for Philly. Breer should be looking to make a lot more trades like this. Yeah, I mean, again, like this is sort of the easy stuff to do, but mm -hmm. it's important to do it. Yes, and until Breer took over at the end of last season for Chuck Fletcher, the Flyers were in denial about what they were. Hopefully this is a sign that they no longer are, because as we've discussed, there's a lot more coming down <laughs> that they need to deal with. Mm -hmm. uh, they traded Kevin Hayes at 50% retention to St. Louis for a sixth. Uh, that reduced Hayes' cap hit to $3.571 million. I'm a little surprised that the market was that soft for Kevin Hayes at 50% retention, even with three years left. Um, he's 31, but he still had 54 points last year, and he still looks like he can drive play, and he's a big, versatile forward who can play C. Um, John Tortorella and him seem to be at odds, and maybe it was just untenable to bring him back when he and the coach couldn't stand each other. Yeah, there was like a lot of sniping in the media. Yeah, John Tortorella has a way of getting on the bad side of a lot of players. And they've clearly decided that his ethic is something they want to hold on to. So if a player doesn't like it, it's time for him to go. Um, not a big deal. The major inconvenience for Philly is that this takes up a retention slot for three years. And Philly is going to have a lot of opportunities to use its retention slots because this is the beginning of a teardown. Uh, they bought out Tony D'Angelo, who signed with Carolina, as we talked about. They then traded David Kasha, who is 26 and in the Czech League and is almost certainly never going to play in the NHL again, for college prospect Massimo Rizzo and a fifth. This is kind of cap store convention a little bit, but anyway, what does it matter? Uh, and they lost JVR, who we mentioned signed with Boston, a year and a million. Still scores a bit. And they finally fired GM Chuck Fletcher, who is going to go down as of having had a disastrous tenure in Philadelphia. Truly. Yeah. So additions and extensions. Peterson, Walker, and Grands, we discussed above. I won't do it again. They drafted Matej Mitchkov, seventh overall. So this is what you should be excited about long term if you're a Flyers fan. Mm -hmm. He's a huge upside swing. There was some chatter that Mitchkov would have gone second overall if it weren't for the complexities of drafting a player from Russia in the current geopolitical situation who is on a KHL contract until 2026. He has elite agility and insane offensive creativity. And while Philadelphia won't have control over his development for a few years, he's also going to miss out on three years where the team is probably going to be terrible. So it'll be a long while before we can say if this bet paid off, but from where Philly sits, this is an extremely good choice. Like, they should not have let him get past seventh overall when he fell into their laps there. Agreed. Yeah, I think this is an exciting, like the, the most exciting thing for the for the Flyers because, as you said, huge upside. You know, Michkov has the potential to be one of the best players in the league by all accounts. Yeah. Um, they extended Noah Cates two years at two point six five million. He is an evolving Wild Selkie candidate. Um, he broke out this year with thirteen goals, twenty five assists, and thirty eight points, and a very strong year by defensive results and tough minutes. His hockey IQ and defensive instincts were well thought of as a prospect, so this might not be a total mirage. And if so, 
Philly might have an interesting player on their hands. Mm-hmm. They need things to feel good about. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think I think Cates is actually good. Um, yeah. I, I don't think he's an evolving wild Selkie candidate. An evolving wild Selkie candidate would play 12 minutes a night against fourth liners. <laughs> that's, you know what, that's fair. Because Cates was not doing easy work. No. And just dining on uh, on soft comp. They extended defenseman Cam York two years at 1.6. He's a gifted offensive defenseman. He might be an aisle of third pair defenseman type. But he wasn't a shelter to some, and he should get more of an opportunity this year on a decimated Flyers defense group. So let's see what he does. Um, they extended forward, sorry, goaltender Samuel Orson, seven year. Whew, I am stumbling on some of these details here. Samuel Orson got two years at 1.45. He's 23. He's a goalie prospect, and he got 12 games last year, and it was passable. But he's probably going to have a development year in the AHL, and we'll see where he's at after that. Unless the Flyers just write off Cal Peterson right away. Um, and then they signed some guys. Garrett, Garnet Hathaway, two years at $2.375 million. He's a physical ninth forward. Tortorella's going to love him. Ryan Paling, a year at $1.4. He's a fourth liner. Mark Stahl, one year at $1.1. He fills the role of overrated defenseman who won't participate in pride events <laughs> for the Philadelphia Flyers. And maybe most importantly of all, they hired Daniel Briere to put an end to the reign of error that Chuck Fletcher oversaw. It is time to burn this whole damn thing down. That's the big takeaway I have from the Philadelphia Flyers. And Breer has made a decent start on it, but there is a lot of work to do here. We are very much in stage one of a rebuild for Philadelphia, where there's still a lot more to tear down before you even start thinking of really building up again. Uh, so let's look at some of those options. Ryan Ellis is probably never going to play again, unfortunately. Yeah. And so he'll be on TIR. I, I thought that was a good acquisition when it happened, and then injuries just, yeah. like, killed it before it started, really. Yeah. And, you know, you have to wonder if Nashville kind of knew they were getting out before injuries really caught up with him, because his history was not impeccable before that. But, yeah, he's he's unfortunately been hit with the bug. Another player who's also been... Uh, badly injured recently is Sean Couturier. He's missed 90 games over the past two years related to two back surgeries. Needless to say, the top priority now is his health and his future. Um, if he's not able to play or not 100%, there is absolutely nothing this team is doing that is worth rushing him back for. They should put him in a, a nice cozy nest to recover his back health for as long as he needs to be. Um, He's got seven years left at $7.75 million. The contract is completely untradeable, even if Kachuri consented to trade, to be traded while he's injured. So Breer just has to hope with patience and attention and good medical care that Kachuri can regain some of his dominant form and maybe be a secondary contributor to a rising Philly team later in his 30s. That's the most optimistic scenario I can see. Mm-hmm. Uh, Travis Sanheim is signed to a bizarre term deal, eight years at 6.25. I would unload that at the first opportunity. I don't know why he's making that much to be like the best defenseman on a terrible team. Um, Rasmus Ristolainen also had a pretty decent year. How often have we been able to say that on this podcast? Yeah, I mean, Torts has a habit of like kind of making a defensive defenseman out of someone on the roster when he gets there. And... (laughs) Looks like uh, he did that with Rasmus. Yeah. You know, Tortorella has his flaws, but sometimes he does maximize certain players. 
And his isolates now look like a player who was ice cold offensively, but improved defensively. And Tortorella was very hard on him and is famously demanding, but he was also calling Risto the most improved player on the team after a few months. Now, I don't know if it makes the remaining four years at 5.1 million palatable or tradable, but teams have always wanted to believe in Rasmus Ristolainen, so maybe. You never know. And again, if they can get away clean from that deal, I would do it. Take a pick back. Uh, Scott Lawton is a good power forward, and they should trade him at peak value. Travis Konechny is a great rat, and they should trade him at peak value too. That might sound extreme, but the Flyers are dog shit, and they are going to be bad for the next couple years at bare minimum. And this is a long road. I think they should trade everyone over the age of 25. Yeah, I mean, we often caution against like the full burn it down rebuild because you could end up in like the Buffalo situation for a while, mm-hmm. where you just have prospects but no actual good NHLers to play with them. But it's going to be such a long time that like, you know, <laughs> the 23 year olds that they have now are going to be like 29 or 28. <laughs> when this team is yeah. starting to be on the upswing again. The the 27-year-olds that they have now are going to be 32, right? Like, it's it might not be yeah. worth keeping them. Yeah, like, in all seriousness, if there's a guy on this roster who is either over 30 or who is expiring within three years, I would say you have to assume they are not going to be part of the next meaningful Philadelphia Flyers team. And if you can get value for them, do it. Yeah, and Konechny would get, like, a I think a reasonable amount. Uh, in, in, in yeah. a trade, I mean. Yeah, and like, there's been some some chatter around him, and they've been kind of hemming and hawing and saying, oh gosh, you know, we can't even fathom that we would trade him. But like, that's fine if you're trying to gin up value for him. But then get some value and then make the deal. Like maybe at the deadline this year, you trade him as a one plus one, and I think you would cash out handsomely. They should not be letting him get close to UFA. Okay, so yeah, anyway, the first step is admitting you have a problem, and at least the Flyers are starting to do that. This is going to be an ugly several years. Like, I don't see a prospect where the Flyers are legitimately good for at least three seasons and maybe longer. Yep. So, anyway, those were 10 teams. Awesome. All right, so we will be back at some point to uh, tee up the remaining, I think we have 10 teams remaining as well. Uh, so yeah, thank you all for listening, for bearing with us. Um, you can catch all of my and work at pensionmanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RBNATPoolman. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.